must I'll stand Would you stand with us in honor of the reading of God's word, please? Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read a few verses from Revelation chapter 1, and also our passage we'll be primarily looking at, which is in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 1, the holy word of the Lord reads, And I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergam and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, And there came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hates. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now in Revelation 3, to the church of Laodicea, the words of Jesus read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we come before you today and we ask again that you would be our teacher. Your Spirit would speak through us today, through me, as I attempt to explain your written word. That I wouldn't speak my thoughts, but simply your thoughts. Father, we just ask that you would bless us. That you would empower us through this message to live victoriously throughout this next coming year. So, Father, we just praise you and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1985, David Cook, the founder of Blockbuster Video, opened the first movie rental store in Dallas, Texas. And less than 10 years later, it had become a worldwide success being the dominant leader within the movie rental business. In fact, by 2004, the company had grown to nearly 9,000 stores worldwide. This company completely revolutionized the movie rental industry. See, previously, movie store rentals, they were pretty limited in their movie selection. They had some options. You know, you'd go into the grocery store. There was a little section over there. You could grab like one of eight options or whatever it was. But Blockbuster changed that all. They offered over 10 times the amount of movies that were previously available. And when you'd go in on a new release, some of you remember this, like the entire wall was just whatever that new release was. They had numerous options. They were always in stock with the movie you wanted to see, and it changed everything. In fact, I don't know about you, but I remember when Becky and I would go to pick out movies back in the blockbuster days, I felt like we spent more time picking the movie than we actually did watching the movies because of how many options there were. Blockbuster was a massive success. From the huge movie selection to the ability to rent video games and even video game systems if you didn't have one, and to the expertly placed candy section that you had to walk by to rent your movie, all of this made you feel like you were at an awesome place, like you were at a theater that had everything you needed that you could watch in the privacy of your home. The point is Blockbuster, scholars agree, Blockbuster was awesome. However, not everything was quite so awesome. In the mid-90s, a brand new cutting-edge technology released called the DVD, the digital video disc, which revolutionized the industry entirely. It all but replaced VCRs. Some of you don't know what that is, children, but you are not missing out. A DVD held movies at a higher resolution, so it wasn't so blurry and fuzzy. If you had a TV, at least, that could handle the 720p or the 10 that it that it ran at, it held more data, it was a lot smaller, and it didn't require the renter to follow the dreaded be kind and rewind label that was on there that usually got you a fee if you didn't be kind and rewind. The DVD was so small that you could easily send it by mail, which opened up the movie rental possibilities at a whole new level. Recognizing these possibilities, a man named Reed Hastings founded a little old company some of you might have heard of called Netflix, which took advantage of all this by offering customers the ability to rent movies from the comfort of their own house, and they didn't even have to leave their home to go get it. It would come in the mail. 
And this was a really cool part about it. You didn't even have to worry about late fees because when they sent you the DVD, you could keep that as long as your subscription was active until you sent it back and then it would send the next one out that you had in the queue. In fact, I was reading, it was said that this was one of the reasons that Reed Hastings founded Netflix after he was frustrated after Blockbuster fined him $40 in late fees for returning Apollo 13 too late. However, as the movie landscape continued to change with things like movie by mail, like companies like Netflix, pay-per-view and on-demand movie rentals, and the launch of Amazon where you could buy DVDs at ease for a decent cost, Blockbuster had become quite complacent in their lead. Not only did the company fail to quickly adopt Blu-ray when it was released, but the company waited over six years before getting into the movie-by-mail industry, which allowed Netflix to completely blow past them. And to make matters worse, Blockbuster's CEO actually turned down an opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million because he thought the company was a total joke. Boy, was he wrong. Today, do you know what Netflix is worth? It is worth almost $300 billion. Consequently, because of their complacency, on September 23rd, 2010, Blockbuster Video filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And by 2014, the last of the company-owned stores had closed for good. And why? Because they'd gotten complacent. Because, in their mind, they were too big to fail. They were the king's. They had it all. But the reality is, they weren't too big to fail, and consequently, they did fail. And they failed because they had lost the zeal they started with, which led to their total ruin. When it comes to being too big to fail, business schools will tell you that there's not a single company on the planet that qualifies for being too big to fail. Unless you count the U.S. government, but they have a gun backing that. But not a single company is too big to fail. And so unless a company rejects this mentality and constantly fights against it by regularly examining itself in order to find areas of weakness, areas of apathy, areas that they need to continue improving in, there's no question about it, they will inevitably fail. It's only a matter of time. You want to know something, church? It's no different with us. It isn't. It's no different for a church. For a church that becomes apathetic, a church that loses its zeal, a church that believes, hey, you know what? We're too big to fail. Have you seen the ministries we got going on around here? Have you seen how successful we are? A church will absolutely fail. And in Revelation chapter 3, we find seven churches, and the one we're going to look at today was a failed church. Now, before we jump into this, I do need to clarify something for us. Notice I said a church will fail, not the church will fail. And that's a big difference there. Why? Because Jesus promised that the church would not fail. He said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So yes, even if a church fails, the church will not fail because Christ won't let it. However, even so, a church 
a single church may fail, and a church will fail if the Christians within that church fail. Right? See the logic there? If, if, if individually a Christian fails and then collectively they all fail, that church will fail. And so if we want this church, if we want Eagle's Nest not to fail, then every single one of us must do our part within this local body to see that it succeeds. Now, with that said, in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, we find the words of Jesus Christ written to the seven churches that existed in the Apostle John's time. And though these chapters were written to these seven churches, the words we find recorded have a lot of application for all churches at all times. In fact, Jesus' words to these churches are a bit like an x-ray machine. They show us what's really going on inside of us. Because the reality is, the outside can look really good when the inside has a lot going wrong. You can have new people coming all the time. You can have Bible studies. You can have prayer meetings, children's ministries, and door-to-door outreach ministries. But on the inside, that church can be a rotten mess. It can have decay. It can have disease. And so Jesus' words here, written to these churches, help us put on x-ray goggles to look at ourselves to examine, hey, are we healthy on just the outside or are we actually healthy on the inside? Now, originally, if you saw the email teaser this week, I had hoped to do a survey of the first three chapters, and that's a joke. We were going to look at all seven of the churches and do an overview, uh, but that's, that's not possible, I've concluded. So we're going to focus in on the seventh church. And the reality is, if, we're, if an American church is going to be one of these seven churches, I think we all know which church it's going to be. It's going to be the last one. It's going to be the church of Laodicea. See, when it comes to understanding Jesus' illustrations and words to these seven churches, it's helpful to know a little bit about the city that Jesus is speaking of when he gives these illustrations. Because he's basing his illustrations upon things that are going on in that city, the characteristics of that city. For instance, the city of Laodicea was known for being rich. They, they were filthy rich. They had a whole lot of money in the city. They manufactured, for instance, a special eye salve as well as a unique glossy black, black wool, which was used to make expensive, fine clothing. And as we'll get to in a minute here, all of this is what Jesus is alluding to by telling them that they are blind and naked. He's using these illustrations out of the culture of the city to make a point. Another thing Jesus uses for an illustration, he uses this hot, he uses cold, uh, lukewarm water, you see in verse 15, and he uses that illustration because it relates directly to the city. See, in Laodicea, this city was located above, let's see if I can say this right, the Lycus Valley, which meant that it didn't have access to cold springs like other cities did that were down lower in the valley. That makes sense, it's lower down, they can drill down, they can get colder water, but Laodicea didn't have that. At the same time, the city wasn't quite high enough or close enough to where the hot springs were to have hot water available readily to them. And so what did the city have to do? They had to build these aqueducts, which isn't like what we have today with pipes in the ground that transfers water how we want and then heats it and cools it where we want. No, they had these aqueducts which transferred the water from other places into the city, which took a while. And by the time the water would reach the city, it wasn't hot, it wasn't cold, it was quite lukewarm. 
And the thing about lukewarm water is it's pretty much useless in its lukewarm state. Think about it. When you go to order coffee at Starbucks or wherever you kids go to these days, do you order hot brew coffee, cold brew coffee, or lukewarm brew coffee? No, nobody orders lukewarm brew coffee. That's disgusting. And if you do that, you need help. At the same time, think about pizza. Do you want the pizza where, you know, you might get for like 20 seconds and it wasn't quite long enough and you have cold spots and hot spots and it's lukewarm? No, that's really gross too. You have hot pizza or you'll let it sit in the fridge overnight and then you'll take out and eat some cold pizza because that's good too in a different way. Lukewarm is useless and that's Jesus' point he's making in this text. Look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. When Jesus speaks of hot or cold here, he's not talking about what we Americans typically view hot and cold when it comes to emotions, right? He's not talking about having hot emotions for him or cold emotions for him. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, I wish you were either on fire for me or completely cold and apathetic towards me because being cold towards me is somehow better than being lukewarm for me. That's not what he's saying. People have written entire sermons based upon this verse saying that that's what Jesus is getting at. Like the logic behind that is like, oh, you know what? Jesus would rather have us be so cold and indifferent to him that the spirit can come in and work. They build these theologies on this. It's like, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about in this text. Not even a little bit. He's simply saying, I would rather have you be hot because I can do things with hot water. It's useful or cold because cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is not useful. It has no purpose whatsoever. Another thing why this is the case, look at the first four words of verse 15. Jesus says what? I know of your, you see the word? Works. He doesn't say I know of your emotions, your feelings, your affections, or your passions towards me. So yes, our works are certainly fueled by those things. They're connected. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what Jesus is going after here. He's going after works. He's going after our usefulness. Because if we aren't useful, we are like lukewarm coffee, which is gross. How gross? Look at verse 16. So gross that Jesus says it makes him want to vomit. Our English translations often soften this down to something like spit up. But no, this is talking about vomiting. It's talking about a gag-like reflex. A deep revulsion within Jesus that arises almost involuntarily when he sees our lukewarm status. That's the imagery here. And so Jesus speaks to this church last, the church of Laodicea, with nothing to praise them for and much to criticize them of. And the core of the criticism was what? They weren't useful. They were not useful. Why weren't they useful? Because they were lazy Christians. Their passions and their desires were not for Christ primarily. They were for the things of this world. They were worldly Christians, carnal Christians. They cared more for the things of the world than the world to come. And consequently, their care or zeal, as Jesus mentions in verse 19, was not primarily for Jesus, but for the world. 
I don't mean this to be snide, but it sounds like the Laodicean Christians would fit in nicely with most American Christians, does it not? After all, I mean, just look at how much we have in common with the Laodicean church. And I may be your pastor, but don't misunderstand me. I'm not exempt to our American culture any more than you are. Was the pastor of Laodicea exempt? Apparently not. Look at verse 14. Who is verse 14 addressing this letter to primarily? The angel. I'm not saying I'm an angel, so calm down. What I'm saying here is, is that when it says the word angel, angelos, that word can either mean angel, as most translations go with, or it can mean messenger. And who is the messenger of a church? The pastor. He is bringing the message of God to the church. He's not bringing his own message, his own vision, his own whatevers. He's bringing the message from the revealed word to the church. He's a messenger, and that is who is being addressed here. So he is no more immune from this criticism than the church is. The point here is, though, we are in this together as a church. And as someone who is an American Christian, I face the same struggles and many of the same challenges that you face. And so I don't want to be a lukewarm Christian any more than you do. The temptation is for us all. And so we must recognize that we are not too big to fail. Even a pastor is not too big to fail. And so I don't want this church to be a bastion for lukewarm Christianity, for Christians who show up on Sunday like a bunch of wine tasters, people who sip upon the biblical passage that's preached, enjoy its taste and flavors, but ultimately they spit it out the minute they get out into their car and drive out of this driveway. I don't want this church to be full of lukewarm, useless Christians, and I trust you don't either. And so, if you don't want to be a useless Christian, if you don't want this to be a fail church full of useless Christians, then please look with me this morning to our passage where we will see three things we must do if we are to be a useful Christian, which will then collectively make us a useful church. And here they are. To be a useful Christian, we must, one, recognize, two, delight, Three, bow. I had an outline. There we go. Three, bow. Let's look at that first one. We must recognize first our need. I have to skip around here. Looks like a slide got eaten. Okay. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me, if you would. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I told you before how, the, how Laodicea was a very rich city and rich they were indeed. These were some high rollers. In fact, in the year 60 AD, the city was nearly destroyed by a massive earthquake. And being under Roman rule, when this happened, usually the Roman government would step in to help out these cities, to send them some financial aid so they could rebuild things. But not this city. They didn't need Rome's help. They said, we got it. We're good. And they rebuilt it by themselves, which goes to show how rich this city actually was. This was very unusual. 
but they were very, very rich. They were prosperous. And because of this, they became very much self-reliant. And consequently, they were unaware of their true condition. And what was their true condition? Look at verse 17. They were wretched, pitiable, blind, naked, and poor. You know what they were? You know the story of the emperor's new clothes? That was them. They were essentially the emperor who had been tricked out of the fine clothing that they had into nakedness. They were tricked out of their true riches. They were tricked into being pitiable and naked. And what, that's what happened to these Laodicean Christians. See, in Christ, we have everything we need. Everything we need. Absolutely everything. And then along comes this swindler who often can trick us into exchanging our spiritual robes, our riches that we have for rags. What do I mean by this? I mean this. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, they realized something. What did they realize? They were naked. What did they do? They grabbed fig leaves and stuff, and they tried to cover themselves up with it. And you want to know something? Ever since the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve fell into sin and rebelled against God, they've been trying to clothe their nakedness. Why? They're trying to hide who they really are. And what are they? What are we? We are sinners. Now, we've gotten a little bit more sophisticated with our covering up efforts, but make no mistake, we all naturally do this in many ways. This is why we look to things to give us value and worth. This is why we worry so much about our resumes. It's a big deal to us. It's why we worry about how we look, what kind of car we drive, how much money we make, or the kind of clothes that we wear. We do this because we are looking to those things to be our new fig leaves, to cover up our nakedness, to hide our shame. We may not outright say it, but we tell ourselves in our hearts that whatever those things are, as long as we have that, then we're okay. Maybe not perfect, but we're okay. The problem is this. Those things, well, the Bible calls those things idols, lead us into falsely believing that we're rich when we couldn't, and that couldn't be further from the truth. We're actually poor. Whereas as Jesus says in verse 17, looking to those things for our riches, value, and worth is just a means of trying to mask our wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and spiritually naked state. The truth is, though, there is only one thing and one thing alone that can change our state from being wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. There's only one thing that can finally and forever cover our spiritual nakedness and shame. What is it? The skin of the lamb that takes away the sins of the entire world. Genesis 1, 3.21 says this, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, when it speaks of the gold refined by fire, when it speaks of these white garments of the salve to anoint the eyes with so that you can see, do you know what Jesus is referring to with these illustrations? In the Bible, white garments are what? They are a picture of righteousness, just as we saw from Revelation chapter 1, where, where you know, Jesus shows up in the visions of John. He's, he's white. It's white everywhere, symbolizing righteousness. The white robes symbolize purity and absolute cleanliness. 
Similarly, the gold refined by fire is a picture of righteousness too, as the refined gold has had all of its impurities burned away from it. What about the eye salve? Well, the eye salve, same thing. It's a picture of righteousness as we now have spiritual eyes who are able to spiritually see. Before we were blind, the eye salve comes in spiritually and we can see again. Now, how is this righteousness attained is the question. Same manner that Genesis chapter 3 alluded to. Not our efforts, God's efforts. Adam and Eve didn't cover themselves with skins. God covered them. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's being slightly ironic. He's telling this group of professing Christians that without him, they're the emperor with no clothes on. They're deluded. They're pitiable. They're poor. Though they thought they were well-clothed, rich, and healthy, the truth is without Christ, they are naked, they are poor, and they are blind. The truth is without Christ, that's every single one of us's condition. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are doesn't matter how much religious activity you can dress yourself up in. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter how spiritually healthy you think you are by measuring your church attendance or you know, your ministry activities, any of that, your Bible reading, your prayer time. None of that matters, for without Christ, your state is still the same. It is being a miserable, wretched wretch. Pitable, poor, blind, and naked. Why? Because just like Adam and Eve when they sinned, our sin was completely exposed to a holy God. And God is not tricked, right? He's not fallen for the emperor's new clothes. And so without sheer grace, every single one of us who are sinners, all of us, we stand exposed and condemned before a holy God. And to the degree that we recognize this, to the degree that we understand this, And repent, as verse 19 calls us to, is the degree to which you and I can become useful and not useless. To the degree that we understand this is to the degree that we will not be lukewarm. Now, if you've ever gotten to that point at all, all right, then you know what it means to be a Christian. But if you've never gotten to this point at all where you understand what I just said, I'm sorry, you're not a Christian. You're just not. However, even for professing Christians, we do need to take this seriously for two reasons. One, as Jesus says in this text, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And two, if we aren't disciplined by him, that means what? We are not loved. And consequently, if we fail to take this seriously then and live as useless Christians, we will prove by our behavior that we are actually not Christians at all. We will prove that we are lost, and one day we will hear those dreaded words, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so we are called to repent, as verse 19 says. How? What does this repentance look like? Well, the answer is right next to it. You see the word? Zealous, which leads us to our second point. To be a useful Christian, we must first recognize our need, and second, delight in his presence. Verse 20, I'm going to read this again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is a very familiar verse that is often used evangelically 
to tell lost sinners that Jesus is knocking at the door of their heart, and if they would simply open that door, Jesus will enter in and they can fellowship with him and receive salvation. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this verse, is it? No, if we look at the context, that doesn't even make sense. Jesus is writing to a church. Jesus is writing to believers. He's writing to people who profess faith in him. And remember again that the context of this verse is calling for what? Calling believers to repent of their idolatry and to be zealous again. And so that word zealous is the key to understanding what Jesus means by this standing at the door and knocking thing. Well, okay, well, what does zealous mean? Who or what are we to be zealous for, church? Well, that word zealous, here's what it means. It means to be intensely serious or eager. And I did a word study on this, and it's interesting enough, that word is actually the root for jealousy and can convey that exact meaning, a jealous definition. Maybe that's why they rhyme zealous and jealous, I don't know. But think about it, Exodus 34, 14 Do you remember the reason God tells the Israelites not to worship any other gods? I'm a jealous God. That's his reason. God is a jealous God. Now, why is God jealous? I thought jealousy was a bad thing. What's going on here? Well, it depends. Jealousy can be a bad thing, and it can be a good thing. See, if someone starts making advances towards your spouse, there's a good form of jealousy that ought to arise up in you if you care at all about your spouse in any way, shape, or form. Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about paranoia here. I'm talking about a legit actual situation where this is for sure happening. And maybe it's even a situation where you completely trust your spouse. You're not worried at all about them being unfaithful or anything like that, but still, Jealousy at least some level is a right response here. Think about it. If someone else is trying to sinfully draw the attention of a man's wife away from him towards himself, and if the husband found out, he's like, well, whatever, no big deal. I'm I'm watching the Vikings. Would you say that man loves his wife? No, not even a little bit. For righteous love leads to righteous indignation, to righteous jealousy. We could say even a form of anger that seeks justice, that seeks righteousness, that seeks virtue. Not for my selfish sake, but for God's and the good of others. And that's exactly what we're getting at here, isn't it? A person who has no zeal for God, a person that we might say has no jealousy whatsoever for the Lord, if they... if That person cheats on God by finding their joy and delight in things that aren't God, which is called idolatry, then how much would you say that that person truly loves the Lord? Questionable, right? They don't have zeal for him. They have no jealousy for the things of this world that tarnish his glory and pull away from his name, that distract from who he is. There's no worry, there's no concern for the things that grieve God. And what does God tell the church of Corinth, which was a carnal church? He tells them that he is jealous for them, for they are wandering from him. And yet remarkably, this is remarkable about this letter. Though this letter begins with Jesus basically saying to a church, you know what, you make me sick. It doesn't end that way, does it? That's how it starts. What does he go on to say? 
he goes on to say, even so, even so that you make me sick, repent, and yet again, be zealous for me. And until you do, I will not only lovingly discipline you back to me as a loving father does for their child, but I will patiently knock at the door, waiting patiently for you to once again delight in only me. The only one who can remove your wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and spiritually naked state. How do we know if that's begun to happen in us? For one, we won't view prayer as work, as a box we got to check to make sure that we're a good Christian. We won't view it that way. When we read our Bibles, we won't view it as, oh, I got to get through this Bible reading, otherwise I'm not going to make it through my yearly or two-yearly, whatever I'm doing, plan. We won't view it as a chore that we must perform to receive our allowance and our reward. Instead, how will we view it? We will view it with delight. For it is a means of fellowshipping with the one who is our delight and our reward. So when that happens, not only will we delight in his presence, which we experience as we pray and as we read his word, that's spending time and fellowshipping with him, but we will also then go on to long to bow before him as Lord and King, which means that we will love to be with our fellow servants, right? Who are our fellow servants? the body of Christ. We will, we will be in anguish. We will miss. We will be saddened when we miss being together with the body of Christ on the Lord's day when we worship our resurrected King. It will grieve us immensely because why? Not because we're checking a box to be a good Christian, but because he is our delight, which leads us to our final point. To be a useful Christian, we must recognize our need. We must delight in his presence. And third, we must bow before him as Lord. Look at verse 21, sorry, verses 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In verse 21, this is telling us something remarkable. It's telling us that the one who conquers those who are useful for Christ. What is the result of this usefulness? Ruling and reigning with him for all of eternity. Jesus is not a tyrant king. He's not a bully who just wants people to do what they don't want to do. No, he is a gracious, loving, and giving king who cares deeply for his servants. How deeply? Deeply enough to do what it took to change their wretched, their pitiable, their poor, their blind and naked state to one that will rule and reign with the God of the universe at his side for all of eternity. Why? How? Because his robes were mine. The only reason we can wear his white robes of righteousness is because he was stripped naked upon the cross. The only reason we can share in his spiritual riches is because he became poor. The only reason we can have spiritual sight to see, and consequently our hearts can then delight in his beauty, is because he couldn't see when he was blinded, slapped, and spit upon. Prophesy, they said, 
as they slapped his blinded face. Church, the only reason that you and I can be blessed is because he received our curse. He took our wretched place and he took it upon the cross. And so when you see the lengths that he was willing to go to in order to fellowship with us, in order to dine with us, as this verse talks about, how can our hearts not pulse with jealous zeal and passion for him? Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I didn't get around to saying this before when we looked at this verse earlier and maybe I should have, but that verse, you know what it's echoing? It's echoing the words of the prophet Isaiah who writes to sinners in Isaiah chapter 55 saying this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and the labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Whether you're a true follower of Jesus Christ who has a heart and eyes for him, but they've wandered off from him back onto the things of this world, or you are someone whose eyes have never truly been opened and are still blind, eyes that have never truly gazed upon him with delight as your Lord and Savior, hear the words of Savior. Hear hear him when he says, incline your ear, come to me and hear, so that your soul may live. In church, to the degree that you do that is the degree to which you and I will be useful Christians in service to our great, glorious, and loving King. Father, I thank you for this text. Father, I ask that you would bless your people through it. I ask, Lord, that we would be a useful church that we would not be lukewarm, that we wouldn't be distracted like Demas was to chase after the things of this world. But I ask, Father, that you would bless us immensely through the power of your spirit and your word. Father, I just pray for the Christians here. I just pray that this next year would be a year where they keep their eyes upon Christ, where they are not distracted by the temptations of sin and the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, Father, I just ask that you would raise up people in this church who are useful. We praise you for the useful Christians we have, but we ask that you would raise up more useful Christians, Christians who don't just show up and warm a pew, but show up and serve the risen King as you've called us to. May we do this together. May we do this in unity and love and passion with much zeal for you and our fellow man. Help us bring the gospel to the lost. Help us never to become a holy huddle that comes and sips on the fine wine of Scripture but spits it out the second we leave. Help us to drink so that we may digest, so that we may act. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.